Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have all new friends and we're talking about Muslim inclusion in media, why shows like Rami and Mo matter. Evelyn Al-Sultani is an associate professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. She is the author of Broken, The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion, and she is a professor and leading expert on the history of representation of Arabs and Muslims in the U.S. media. Asultani has served as a consultant for Hollywood Studios on how to better represent Muslim characters. She co-authored the Obidai Asultani Test to help Hollywood improve representations of Muslims. And she has a podcast, Muslims as Seen on TV. And it's a great conversation. I am so glad to have her here. Also welcome new friend, Ashley Ray. Ashley Ray is the most famous bisexual solo polyamorous black queer comedian, actor, and writer currently based in Los Angeles. Ashley was selected as one of HBO Max's queer comics to watch for 2021, and she filmed a digital special for the platform. She's written on Adult Swim's Alabama Jackson and appeared as a guest on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Seth Rogen's Storytime. Check out her podcast, TV I Say with Ashley Ray. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast, and Twitter is friendslikeustin. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. Special shout-out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. And now available, we have a backstage option where you can watch the recordings live as a golden friend merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies yes it's hoodie season folks coffee mugs face masks and tank tops they're all available on my website just go to marinafranklin.com weekly on my youtube channel i go live with my assistant evelyn frick my wacky friend dave Juskow. we give updates to the show we shut up fans who leave reviews and we have surprise guest friends from the podcast who stop by and sometimes we even offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows and with friends like us it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way tell a friend you know to check us out stay safe wash those dirty little hands wear a mask still if you want to get vaccinated booster up and black lives matter to have both of you here to talk about what we're going to talk about today because these are some very serious topics and it's also a good topic to discuss today for the first time evelyn on the show evelyn al-sultani thank you for joining us and also ashley ray harris who i didn't even realize i met but this is your first time on friends like us tell them what you were saying before about how we met yeah we met in chicago this was 2016 17 at paper machete uh, which is like a it's a wonderful show they have poetry comedy music uh, at the green mill which is like a famous chicago bar uh, and we were both on it and like you were prepping for your hour i was like headed to new york to do shows and just briefly we were just like oh hey and i had to go to the airport and it was yeah thank you because it was like i remember that moment and i remember that it was just like 
I was really inspired by the comics that went up in that space in Chicago because we're both from Chicago. I was like looking at you. I was trying to find out where you're from. So it's it's really great that you're from Chicago. And that, just so you know, the paper mill, this called the Green Mill? The Green the Mill, paper? yeah. It's a, the show is the Paper Machete, and it's special. They do it like in the middle of the day. It's like 3 p.m., and you're getting drunk and watching like bands and, and musicians and comedians <laughs> in the middle of the day at this like very dark bar. It's where... Um, Oh, who's that, like, famous gangster? Al Capone. Yeah, it was, like, his regular bar. He would never have his back to the door, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which my dad, he was from Chicago, too, and would say the same thing. He'd be like, never sit with your back to the door. And I was like, I don't think you need to be worried. Like, we're at Red Lobster. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) We're at Red Lobster. What are you talking about? like, no one's coming. You know, people do that. Also, on the subway, I do that. I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have my back. And then I'm like, eh. What's going to happen is going to happen. But Evelyn, wow. Like, I was just like, you know, we're both comedians, but you are doing, like, this work that is just so impressive. Associate professor uh, um, in Department of American Studies, Ethnicity at University of Southern California. That's right. And the author of... Broken, the Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion. So tell us about that. Yes, so this is my forthcoming book. It'll be out in November. And it's looking at this diversity investment that's happening in our society right now and how Muslims are suddenly part of being included in diversity initiatives. And how did that happen? Why did that happen? And how are these diversity initiatives panning out? What are the limits? What are the possibilities? And um, the answer to the question is that, and I think this applies to many communities, we get quote unquote diversity. Sometimes it's anti-racist, sometimes it's just this nice fluffy feel good thing when there's a crisis. If there's no crisis, there's no action. So if there's a crisis, in the case of Muslims recently, it was Donald Trump's Muslim ban. Or if we look at George Floyd as another example as a catalyzing event, So I raise the question, if there's no crisis, perceived crisis, because these are crises that have been around for centuries, if there's no crisis, does that mean there's no change? And so the book explores different institutions, TV, in two different chapters, and then law enforcement and uh, universities and cancel culture around Muslims. Is there cancel culture? Well, I guess, yeah, when I, even as I just presented that, I, I hear so much complaining from from white men about cancel culture, but we were always canceled. People of color have been canceled since the onset, right? Yeah, and I feel like even in mainstream cancel culture, it's only people of color who actually suffer the consequences. You know, Louis C.K. can win a Grammy. White people who are, you know, technically canceled can usually have a comeback. And then you you look at someone who, you know, is a black female singer or something, they say the wrong thing. Uh you know, even the baby who I don't agree with the rapper, but like he got very completely canceled because he said homophobic remarks. And yeah, I feel like we're really the ones who actually get canceled. Exactly. Who gets canceled? Who gets uh, another chance? So there are there are a few instances with people saying anti-Muslim things and being canceled. It's not like a it's not all the time because there's a lot of anti-Muslim speech that's entirely acceptable. Muslims are terrorists and that and the other. But Juan Williams was uh, fired from NPR, I think it was back in 2010, and then Fox News hired him, and he has a very lucrative, wonderful career on Fox News. He had said he was scared to fly in a plane with other Muslims, 
And then um, Kurt Schilling on ESPN, he was fired for posting an anti-Muslim uh, meme followed by an anti-transgender meme. And so um, I look at basically how the institution looks amazing. Wow, they fired these people and we feel so good. Our society's anti-racist. And then the institutions are let off the hook as if they're, they're the heroes. Meanwhile, they've been producing conditions of discrimination for a very long time. So I just question, even if it feels good to have the power or to feel like we as communities of color have power to raise our voice and shut certain people down, what is the actual long-term impact if we're just focusing on the individual and not on the institutions? Yeah, I keep saying it. The The white guys keep complaining, and I'm like, you're not. Like, I was looking at all the late shows, like we're going to talk about how Trevor Noah is leaving uh, Comedy Central, The Daily Show. But then I see, like, the shows that are doing really well, like Greg Gutfeld. Who's Greg Gutfeld? Oh, he used to be on The Red Eye on Fox, and um, he's one of the alt-right, when they try to be funny, I mean, and I mean they try, and I used to, believe it or not, like, I used to go on his show because this is when I was a younger comic and I didn't know any better. And I would do, like, Red Eye. I think it was on Fox. I'm not sure. And they would always, they love comedians. The alt-right, the right Republicans, they love comedy on their terms. But they also just love bringing comedians on. So I used to go on this show with him. And then I started to realize, who is this guy? Wait, what is his views it was the first time I actually really had to think about it and then I've noticed like his show is doing better it says here um there are exceptions ABC recently struck a deal with Jimmy Kimmel to keep him at the helm and Fox News's channel's Gutfield which features host Greg Gutfield leading a roundtable that hashes over the news of the day and vies with the daily show time slot and has seen growth in a time period which is the same as the daily show which is interesting to me. There's, I, I keep telling people there is a, a push, there is a protest from white audiences to support even material that they don't even really like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, they just, I, it's so wild to me that they're like, we don't even like it, but it's us, and we're going we're gonna to support it. Like, they will just... Goodfeld is not it's not a good show like it's I think it's like they're some nights it beats like Colbert and stuff it can't be because people are entertained by it it's just spite watching it's thank you that's the term spite watching spite supporting comics there's comics that I you know I won't say any names because you know I'll get in trouble in a sense, so I don't want to put them out there. But there's some comics that have all been canceled that that, that were still kind of green, but the, the, they have risen in views. So do you see, Evelyn, do you see that, like, when you do studies? and I mean, in the case of Juan Williams, he did not have a severe, you know, he bounced back great. Uh, Kurt Schilling seems to be doing really well. So we have these moments where it seems like the consequence is lifelong, but that's not necessarily the case, especially if these are people on the right who are being picked up and um, uplifted. Uh, the other example is Laura Schlesinger, if you might have remembered, she went on an N-word rant on her nationally syndicated radio show many years ago, and then she got a show on Sirius XM. So it's just... What? Yeah. 
cancel one day, get on a, another platform and keep on going. You just wait a little bit, you get a new audience and you just start rolling with that. And the other audience, they'll, they don't, if you're on their side, they'll spend money, they'll buy tickets, they'll buy whatever, they'll listen to your podcast, they'll, they'll they're, and it's just all out of spite. It's like a form of activism to support someone who said racist stuff. I keep saying that, and I think that needs to be a headline because I think that it will help people to realize why it's so important to, like, buy your book, support black women comedians, comedians of color, uh, shows like Rami, you know, and yeah. Mo. We're going to get into that. What? How are you? I have not watched Rami. I watched one episode of Rami, and I've, I have to get back to I'm There's so much TV out there, there right now. There it is. But... We're into Hulu debuted the third season of Rami, the wonderful dramedy co-created by and starring comedian Rami Youssef, Youssef as a Muslim American man struggling to reconcile his faith with his fondness for forbidden activities like sex, porn, and drugs. It's been two and a half years since we last saw Rami, but Youssef was not exactly idle during the long pandemic hi hiatus. So what are we... Evelyn, how are you we feeling about his show? I personally love Rami and Mo, and I know a lot of people who don't like the show for whatever reason, including Arabs and Muslims and, you know, that whole thing. Yeah, I but, like that too. Yeah, I, I have to say, since I've been studying representations of Arabs and Muslims for 20 years, it is really sick. These two shows are groundbreaking. Whether you like them or don't like them or they're your taste or they're not your taste, they are groundbreaking. We have never seen shows like this before. So it is refreshing. You've seen them, Ashley? That's, oh, yeah. I, I'm totally caught up. Uh, I finished the third season of Rami actually over the weekend. Uh, and I was actually invited to come speak on the after show that they did this season. Uh, so they had me come in for episode seven, which is uh, when they get into polygamy and polyamorous relationships. Uh, so I, I am poly and I talk about it. I'm like a poly relationship expert. So they had me come in and talk about what it's like from a woman's perspective. Uh, so I got to watch half of the season, like up to that episode over the summer. And I immediately was just like, this is amazing. Like this new season is going to win awards. It is challenging and different in a lot of new ways it really goes into some of the characters like the sister uh who i think hadn't really gotten as much background um and then i finished it over over the weekend and i thought the the ending all of it was just great it just it doesn't feel like anything else on tv um i don't i it feels very authentic to me but i i'm not muslim but i'm always just like this feels like such a personal depiction like i feel like i'm really seeing rami and his family is there anything you learned from it that you didn't know before yeah i mean a lot of it i, I think in this new season i don't want to like give away too much for the people who haven't watched it but um they go to palestine and that you know i think for most americans is something that feels so foreign we don't get you know a real look at the reality of what that situation is like. And in this episode, they went there and you really see how, you know, the, the, the path to like get into Palestine to go through all of these checkpoints, how dangerous it is, how much the military does run this little area. Um, 
and that that was I, that yeah was really eye opening to me and it, it it does have an interesting uh there's something that comes out of that that I know a lot of people on Twitter were upset about where that story goes um which I thought it was it, it's it does have very high stakes where you're kind of like oh is that really good oh Rami's a horrible person um, <laughs> but also I do think that the show what I like about it is that Rami clearly hates himself so much and you're supposed to feel that too um, and I know that's another reason why people have a hard time I think watching it because people don't they want to watch shows where they can root for the main character Rami's not someone you root for <laughs> oh he's not oh no <laughs> He is detestable, yes. and I, was, I haven't seen season three yet, but I was hoping and praying that he would grow as a person. Sounds like maybe not. <laughs> but is it in a in a less stereotypical way and more in yeah, a human way? it's a human way. I wouldn't say it's, you know, the kind of stereotype of the, the early 2010s man baby. It's not like, oh, he smokes pot and he, you know, doesn't do responsible things. It really is someone who has like a personal self-hatred because he wants to be this good Muslim person. He wants to make his family proud, but he also has these desires to you know, like sleep with prostitutes and do drugs and be, a you know, a, a young 20 something year old man in New York City. Uh, and so he's always at conflict with himself. And that I think is really realistic. You know, that's this upbringing he has and it's so strong. And then you get into kind of the parents and how they feel like they let him down and, you know, their own just like issues with themselves for like leaving their home countries and coming to America and this guilt that they feel over that. And it just adds a human layer at every step. You know, it's never sort of um, a shallow depiction. I like there was that show CBS tried to do. Um, I cannot remember what it was called. It was like the one where was it called shallow depiction? <laughs> <laughs> was it um the one about Al? Yeah, it was like you the United, Afghan interpreter. Yeah. United States of Al. And yeah, he's like an Afghan interpreter who like comes and he lives with like this white family and they're just like, Oh my gosh, Al, thank you for teaching us so much. Blah blah blah. And you know, he he's just there to like be this a magical person who enlightens all the white people and that is just not Rami at all like that is mm. not the focus that is yeah great Th thank you for breaking that down now I see why you do reviews yes yes that was so eloquent <laughs> that was so that well was by the way TB is backstage we do have some of our Patreon fans who come backstage to listen watch and thank you good morning tv uh he started al but couldn't do more than two episodes is what he's saying <laughs> yeah uh, i i did watch the pilot of that um i try to give everything a shot and i just i i and i i like some i can do some cbs shows i you know i'm not a snob i like mom um you know and it it was tough it was just it was like it was written in, I don't know, 1998, the jokes they were making. It was just very like, oh, you know, they would see like a lamb or a goat and he'd be like, oh, do you want to eat that, Al? It was just so weird. It got a little better with some of the future seasons, but the first few were very cringy and with his accents. And I felt bad for the producers because they were trying to tell a story about Afghan interpreters. And then they got a lot of criticism, hate from Muslims, like, here we go, we have to have this patriotic Muslim again, with the same kinds of tropes. Um, 
I do think I got a little better later and I, I feel really sad when I see someone make an effort and it flops and everyone's yeah. mad about it. But it's it, a lot it, of I pressure. Would, yeah, yeah. It was a lot and, of pressure. Know, especially with network, you know, I'm sure a lot of those changes came at the network level and you're fighting. That's, that's the thing people I think don't realize about representation is that you can have the most diverse writers room, the most diverse team behind the show. And at the end of the day, the people who run these networks are white men who will look at it and go, uh, I actually an example from a show I worked on uh, an executive was like I don't know who Rosa Parks is this reference is too niche <laughs> he was literally like people I don't know yeah he was like he was like who is Rosa Parks uh, no. are you serious yeah I'm 100% he serious he should have been fired and everyone was just like yeah and everyone was like well yeah you know we bring him in to kind of get a you know level of like where the average you know 18 to 49 year old white man will kind of stand with the things you've said uh, there were questions over like Harriet Tubman in the series and how do you not know who Rosa, who Park Rosa Parks Rosa Parks is the one name they throw they, at every, us every February you should be like oh there's Rosa but you know so you try to make these diverse shows and they get watered down and, you know, and then when they fail, everyone is like, well, see, America didn't want that. You know, and you look at like bros right now, people are like, oh, bros flopped its opening weekend because, you know, people, America wasn't ready for this gay thing. And yeah, it's just, yeah. So I was going to ask you this, Evelyn, about Islamophobia and how Hollywood contributes. So, we t we're talking about Rami. Are there some things that they do get wrong? Are there some... Th what is what is the argument? Because I have a friend from Egypt. Mm -hmm. His name is Hatim. I used to call him Hot Tim. And everyone <laughs> thought his name was Hot Tim. Tim. I was like, no, it's Hot Tim. And he said he's he has some issues with the show. You know, and I, I just listened because I don't really know. I understand if people have issues with the show. So here's the the reason why I um, am a fan of both, even if I might not like a, you know, if I get nitpicking, I don't like something. Historically, Arabs and Muslims have been portrayed as one and the same. And over a century, we've had oppressed veiled women, exotic belly dancers, terrorists, rich oil sheiks. One of my mentors, um, who passed away, Jack Shaheen wrote a book called Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood Vilifies a People. And he looks at Hollywood movies from the late 1800s until 2000. And out of a thousand movies that portray Arabs, and they are conflated with Muslims, uh, he said that 12 are positive and 52 are even-handed. And so we are, we've inherited this system of meaning about Arabs and Muslims. And then suddenly after 9-11, I, what, I, what I note in my work is that there have been some shifts but what are these shifts and what are their limits? So one shift happened shortly after 9-11 because the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee were upset seeing terrorist portrayals after 9-11. Many TV shows are doing that, ripped from the headlines. And so what we got was The Patriot. So there are many, many shows, TV dramas, 24, Homeland, Jack Ryan, where if there's a Muslim terrorist, you throw in a patriotic Muslim and you're like, I'm not stereotyping, there's a good one. And so it seems very strategic. And so in my book that's coming out, I refer to this as stereotype confined expansions, where you're expanding the representation, but it's like, oh, it's a terrorist, okay, we'll do a patriot. Oh, it's a religious fanatic, we're gonna have someone who's Muslim, but they're not religious at all. 
And yes, it's an expansion, but it's very, very limiting, very disappointing. And so we have the Patriot. And then the nominal Muslim, which is someone who is secular. And there are some great portrayals of nominal Muslims, and many of us are not particularly religious. Uh, but it was a trend. So Aziz Ansari is within that trend, and it's not blaming him. It's just like, this is what we could produce at this time. Aziz Ansari, Kamil Nanjiani, in particular, represent the secular Muslim. They're not religious. They're throwing religion away. And so if we think about those two categories as our improvements, Mo and Rami have nothing to do with that. They're, they're both religious. They're people. They're struggling with religion. Mo is giving us a whole new story about Palestine, about the experience of a Palestinian in the U.S., which we've never seen before. Uh, my um, friend and colleague, Sue Obeidi, who works at the Muslim Public Affairs Council in the Hollywood Bureau, we created a test together called the Obeidi al-Sultani test because we were like, wow, there are all these improvements, but they're failing. They're flopping. They're like, they're, it's like we're almost there, but we can't get there. You don't need a test for Rami and Mo, okay? You can like it, you can not like it. It's not about did they represent properly or improperly. And I think there's a lot of pressure since we don't have anything. You know, it's like we're starving, we don't have anything. So this has to represent all 1.8 billion Muslims and we all need to like it. I mean, it's not realistic. Ms. Marvel came out, that's great. We have a Pakistani Muslim superhero. We are lady parts came out of the UK and Peacock is brought. So it's the best. Good. I mean, I cried the whole time because yeah. I was so happy. Uh, I've never seen anything like go that. Go watch before. it. Peacock is horrible at promoting their shows. You probably haven't heard of We Are Lady Parts. Go watch Please. it. It is so good. I know I got a second season, so thank goodness. <laughs> so we're at a moment where there is an opening. It, you know, four shows, five shows is not gonna change thousands of representations. And we're not all going to see ourselves in five shows, but we there's an opening now. Um, the other trend that I have observed is what I call the diversity compromise, which is trying to make an effort. And then it's like, we'll change this, but we won't change that. So Aladdin, for example, the live action remake, finally, they didn't whitewash the characters. After Oscar's so white, okay, they finally cast it appropriately. But they think that having this Orientalist spectacle is better than terrorism. So you just like revert back to Arabs as exotic. Meanwhile, there are hundreds, thousands, millions of stories you can tell, but let's just go back to the old stuff and recycle them because at least it's not terrorism. Uh, so I'm seeing a lot of that also. So, but again- Oh, it's like, let's make it nice, but not real. Yes. Yeah, I get that one. And then there's the other one, the Aladdin, and then was the um, Argo. Yes. Uh-huh. Argo. What's fascinating about Argo is that it has this 60-second, 90-minute intro that tries to be very complex and give this history of representation of uh, political situation in Iran. It's utterly forgettable. And the rest of the movie, you're terrified. You're out of your mind. This country looks crazy, oppressive, violent. And to me, I think it should be renamed Not Without My Daughter Part 2. In case you've seen Not Without My Daughter, it should be Not Without My Daughter Part 2. So what do, what about female representation, Muslim representation, and do you, where is it? Yeah. A lot. So a lot of the complaints I hear from friends is Mo and Rami, it's like this bro culture. It's all about the dude. Where are the women? Yeah. And it's valid. Where Again, is Marvel... Lead? 
Yes, they are the lead. I'm glad to hear the sister has a bigger role in Rami this season. A lot of people want that. Also, the mother, um, uh, Hiyama Vas, uh, she's amazing. And pretty much like mid-season two, she gets her first like solo episode. And it was so good that the season three, they just like make that an entire thing. It's so I, I did think the third season did a better job. Uh, Mo, I loved Mo. I thought it was great. Uh, and also just being from uh, my family's from Texas, I, I thought it captured Houston in a way people really don't realize that Houston is so diverse. Um, but I was kind of like, where where are the women? Where, you know, he has a sister who the whole joke is that, like, she's very whitewashed, that she's, like, given up on, th- like, her religion. You know, she married a guy from Canada. And then his mom, who is very traditional, and it's kind of just like, you know, and then he has this weird relationship where he's dating a Catholic woman and trying to get her to convert. And it's like, oh, okay, where... Like, what does he, did he try to go on any dates with Muslim women? What, what happened there? Right. Yeah. So these are very dude bro focus shows. Again, Ms. Marvel's is a little opening. We Are Lady Parts is an opening, but there is also a trend. If we think about the, the other ones that I mentioned, which are significant in the world of Muslim representation, even though they distance themselves from Islam, but Aziz Ansari, Kamil Nanjiani, even Hassan Minhaj, his show, amazing show. But again, it was a man at the center. So we want to see Muslim women. Yeah, at the center. That was the 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 one thing I was, as I was looking over, I was doing my research and looking over everything. And I was like, where are the women? Where I want to hear that are the center of the stories. You know, and I see that like like you're saying in Rami's, they're gradually bringing it in. This constantly like, can it work? Will it work? And are they afraid at their attempts, maybe? I'm not sure. And who are the writers? I hear so much, even for me, I I focus more on, like, obviously, like, black stories and who's the writers. And it is, you know, you get into these situations, you get into these rooms, and then, like you said, you find out who really has the final yes and the word on it. And then I wonder who's writing in these rooms are, are there women in these rooms are there women who are showrunners in these rooms um do you do you come into contact with them evelyn i do so i i have consulted but my experience have been either i'm called in to do 101 who are muslims like I don't expect people to know anything about Muslims. I don't know everything about every community. I don't know. I couldn't tell you the different groups in China. I couldn't tell you the different Native American tribes, you know. But if I'm working on a project, I can Google. And sometimes I go into sessions and it's so basic. Why am I here? You could have Googled that. And if you're working on a project, I must literally Google. So it's either basic 101 or it's emergency after the fact. And I'm sure there are other consultants who are called in during and part of the, I've never been part of the process. I have many times been, we're about to release this. Muslims are going to be mad. What should we do? Are they going to cancel? Is all, are all Muslims going to cancel their subscription? And then it's damage control. How to, how to deal in case there's a cancel culture thing that happens. So those have been my two experiences and when sue and i created the obey the al-sultani test one of the things is you have to have someone in the writer's room yes something could still go wrong but you can't just add someone at the end you need if you're writing about a community you need to have people of those communities be part of your team from the very beginning through the whole 
process. What do they get wrong with women representation, oh Muslim gosh. women? Can you just take us down a list of, there's some obvious ones, but some also not so obvious ones? Yes. I mean, the obvious ones is that we're obsessed with the hijab as a symbol of oppression. Recently, there has been a shift and we are seeing more Muslim women on television with the hijab. And now a lot of Muslim women, including me, I don't wear one, is like, okay, if you represent a Muslim woman, she doesn't, it's not a requirement that you have a hijab. Yeah. So it's good. We're seeing it. I've noticed uh, a lot of times they'll, like, that's all the representation is. She's just wearing it and never talks about it, never talks about her religion. That's never actually a part of the story, the plot, like her family, and none of that matters. Like, she just has the hijab, and you're like, that's the representation. There it is. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so after Muslim ban, we got a lot of women. For Actually, after 9-11, we barely saw any women. It was all men, and they were the patriots. And then we started seeing female patriots. So Quantico is one example. Two women hijab, patriotic, who are represented. Um, one of, um, in Homeland, we had Farah Chirazi, who ends up, who's the ultimate patriot because she ends up being killed by the hands of a Muslim terrorist. So she sacrifices her life. She wears a hijab. Um, the bull type had a queer Muslim character and um, people were very excited about her. And she, uh, her hijab wearing practices were inconsistent with how women wear the hijab. So it was one of these moments where it's like, did, did, was there anyone on the team that knew how to, you wear this thing? No. Uh, it's like so watching the hair on Game of Thrones, like the yeah, the wigs. Oh uh, yeah, the black characters in the white dress. Oh, it's, it's like so yeah. bad. Uh, not working for not me. Working. Not working. Not to be too critical, but like, come like, on. They, they clearly did not hire black people to lay those wigs on. Like, it's just you can tell. Like, all their hair is bundled up under it. It's sad. It makes me mad. <laughs> and not a spoiler alert, but they finally ended one scene where I was like, oh, finally he got her. Haircut. Yeah, me too. Oh my but gosh, I was like, uh, I was like, look at him now with that haircut. He, he looks good. good. I was like, good. Now we can work <laughs> with this. He has that silly wig. But off. go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, the other one that comes to mind that's recent is uh, from Lone Star Nine One One. There's a firefighter who is amazing. I love this character, and she has improved over time. But the first two episodes, her hijab falls off while she's on the job, and her hair is flowing in the wind. And then there's a scene, two second scene of her praying, and she wasn't praying properly. Uh, and Twitter went crazy about that one scene. So again, like, it's like you're making an effort. We have a firefighter who's a Muslim woman. She wears a hijab. She's an amazing character. And then these blunders that happen. It's like you just can't can't seem to get it right. Do, do, what were they saying about the prayer? Like, do, do you think they just like could the actress say something or? The um, actor is um, um, an Arab Christian woman, so she's not Muslim. So she probably didn't know. Got it. She did the best she could under the circumstances. And they have, they got more um, consultants since those blunders, and that has not happened since then. So at least there's that. But yes, we've had belly dancers and harem girls historically, like in the 20s, 30s, 40s, or a lot of that. And then there's eras where there's just nothing. And then if, or you have, um, Jack Shaheen used to call it bundles of black, like these faceless, nameless women in the background wearing a chador hijab. They're just there symbolically, but they never speak. You never hear from them. But right now, again, you know, there's this there's this opening, and the question is: Is it momentary because of Muslim ban? Will it continue? Will it not? Where I don't know where this is going. So Muslims make up from the article that we put in new report from the USC 
Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. I just found this article and I thought it was good. Reveals Muslim characters are erased and painted as extremists in popular television series. This article came out fairly recent still. Um, Muslims make up 25% of the world's population, yet we're only 1.1% of characters in popular television series. Not only is this radical erasure an insult, it has the potential to create real-world injury for audiences, particularly Muslims who may be the victims of prejudice, discrimination, and even violence. This was written by Al Bob Khan. And the actor, Riz Ahmed, said, Stage one is the, he's talking about the blueprint um, for Muslim inclusion and some of the errors they make. Stage one is the two-dimensional stereotype, the mini cab driver slash terrorist slash corner shop owner. It tightens the necklace. Stage two is the subversive portrayal taking place on ethnic terrain, but aiming to challenge existing stereotypes. It loosens the necklace. And stage three is the promised land where you play a character whose story is not intrinsically linked to his race. There, I am not a terror suspect nor a victim of forced marriage. There, my name might even be Dave. In this place, there is no necklace. So, I, I, to go with what you were saying, I read that and I found that very yes. fascinating. Yes. That is the vision. The um, Annenberg um, inclusion report, they do these reports for all different groups and they, they get incredible data. Uh, so they recently partnered with Riz Ahmed's company and with the Pillars Fund, which is a Muslim philanthropic organization. They've been doing really incredible work to highlight these, this problem, offer fellowships to Muslim filmmakers and resources to Hollywood. And I think that this one um, statistic, 1%, 1.1% of those represented are Muslim and 25% of the population, global population are Muslim. I think that's a real stunning figure. I'm seeing a lot of increase in representations of Muslims, but this is saying that there is a dearth of representation. We do not see ourselves. There are not many stories about us. This, I think, was a 2018-2019 study. And again, my research is showing this improvement with some kavits, like, uh, it's almost there, but not quite, this, this effort, but it's failing. Uh, but yeah, when I saw this figure, I was really, it took my breath away to, to really think about it that way. There is a scholar, Muniba Salim, who has done a study that shows that what we consume influences the kinds of policies we support. And so if you keep seeing Muslims represented as terrorists, which is what it has been for many, many decades, especially those two decades after 9-11, it was constant until just a year or two ago it stopped, uh, that you end up uh, supporting war in Muslim-majority countries you end up supporting restrictions on civil liberties for Muslims in the U.S. And that data is also stunning because it shows this idea that it's just entertainment and doesn't impact us. I mean, I, I, I can't take it anymore. I can't hear that one more time. It is so influential. It influences war. It influences support for war. People will die. They don't know anything about Muslims. Well, I saw I saw hundreds of representations of Muslims as terrorists, so isn't that who they are? Don't we need to invade their countries? Don't we need, aren't we, shouldn't we be at war with them? So um, I think this data is really powerful and that it really highlights for me that representations matter and it is life or death. It's not just fun and entertainment. It's not just 
you know, fluffy in the clouds. Yeah. I think it shows us how far we have to go. I mean, we look at shows like Rami and Moan, We Are Lady Parts, and it feels like we're making so much progress. But when you look at like sort of just the big picture of where we should be, you know, everything is just, it feels like decades behind. And that, I don't know, I, I, I do think the biggest thing is that it is, there's these waves of, oh, yes, we have to have diversity. We have to do this. You know, you look at like, like black culture, you know, 2020, everyone was like, you have to work with black people, support black people, support black shows. And now it's two years later and that has waned. That has, you don't, you don't see that anymore. Now it's like, oh, it did it. I don't, does it even make money? Oh no, we still need to like focus on hiring white people. And it, it just comes and goes in these weird ways. Yeah. It's like this the weird crisis pendulum. And the crisis the, yeah, the passed. crisis pass. Right. And so you see this moment where it's like, we need shows like Blackish and we need this. And then it goes back. And, you know, when you look at a show like Moan around all, all of those shows, it's cool because, yeah, they're on FX and Netflix. They get to do really experimental things. You know, like I would say you're finally seeing those stories told at the level of like in Atlanta, you know, where Atlanta was kind of one of the first shows where, you know, black men were depicted as just silly joyful you know there were no real it wasn't like a life or death consequences dramatic portrayal of blackness in atlanta you know it was a show that could have an invisible car and then the next episode say something about race and the next episode say something about family and with mo and rami we're finally getting that level of representation but it's still like you know, I think a show on ABC about a Muslim family is something that people would be shocked by. You'd probably see a backlash, like when people had a backlash against Blackish, you know, and that's the reality of like where we really are. So it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not enough. Yeah, it's not enough. And it's like, it's never enough. Start. Yeah. It's not and enough. it's like, you know, how many people are watching these niche artistic Netflix and Hulu shows? So what are you doing to make sure that it's, it is enough? What Evelyn, what have you started? For? So the hope with my book is that we can ask this question about uh, what are more effective approaches to diversity, if we even want to use that word, or anti-racism. What are more effective approaches? And to be aware of how are we thinking about diversity, Hollywood? How are we thinking about diversity, corporations? And to just be aware of what these common uh, pitfalls are. And with Hollywood, if we have inherited thousands of stories of Muslims as terrorists or oppressed women, Rami and Mo is not going to undo that. It's a start, but we need stories. And I mean, it sounds like an impossible task, but we need hundreds of stories. And also, if you have hundreds of stories, we don't have to hate on Rami because he's obsessed with sex. Because then you have your own, there are lots of options. We don't have to, Rami doesn't have to solve the problem single-handedly. So we need tons of stories for all of these underrepresented communities to see ourselves. It's not just one or two, but great start. Okay, the, let's keep it going. No spoilers, but like if the if the sex thing is an issue with Rami for you, season three does, I think, handle it in a really smart way. It addresses it. So give it a shot. <laughs> I just finished watching Surface on Apple TV. I don't know. Yeah. I <laughs> you're like, oh, you see, I'm like, oh, I was hoping Ashley was like, I watched that. But you're like, oh. We don't watch the same shows anymore because there's, there's so much, so much out there. And Apple TV is the one I'm always slowest to catch up on. I don't know why. It's just I have Google Chrome all over my house, so it's always a hassle to, like, get my Apple TV on. So I'm always like, oh, yeah, I finally just started Bad Sisters. Um, I finished Physical. Uh, 
loot with Maya Rudolph. And I, yeah, I think I have to watch like Pachinko. There's so many things I got to watch on Apple TV. You're, you're right. Apple TV. It, that's, that's also a challenge for all of this, right? Is streaming and what's ha- actually hap- happening to how we watch TV, the choices we make, because now it's kind of like radio where, you know, you used to listen to the radio and you'd be introduced to new music. How you get introduced to new shows is very challenging. It has to be right now. I agree. You just said surface. I'm like, what's yeah, that? Yeah, literally, I'm just like, is that? What? I think I may have said the name. <laughs> or too. Or we are lady parts. Most people say, what's, what's that? that? Yeah, you know. And back, you know, a decade or two ago, everyone's watching 24. We all know what that is. We're all watching, you know, a few select shows were overlapping. Now it's Yeah, and now it's, it's, very it's so just disconnected that, and, and if the platform doesn't, you know, put a lot of support behind it, Uh, Mo, I think, is a great example. Like, I didn't even know it was coming out until it was out. And I was like, oh, there's this cool show. I love this this comedian. Let me check. Oh, and Rami worked on it. Uh, But, like, Netflix didn't really do a big push. You know, it wasn't, you know, out there like Dahmer, where everywhere you turn, there's an ad for Dahmer. Um, (laughs) Which... Thanks for bringing that one up. It's just, oh, my God. Like, show... I was... I was watching like a documentary about like puppies on Netflix. Like it was like a puppy competition. And then afterwards they're like, you want to watch Dahmer next? I'm like, no, <laughs> why are you? Sh-? It's like the, the trailer's about to start. And I'm like, no, don't start this trailer. I'm trying to go to bed. We need more people of color in every aspect of entertainment. And that it goes into the ad sales, to the people making these decisions all the way down. It's not just writers in the rooms, not just, you know, creators. It's also these people in the rooms that are saying, you know, hey, you got to do more. Like you said, for Mo, like, and I've known both of them, Mo and Rami, since like, I remember the first came to the Comedy Cellar. Rami, the first time I saw him on stage, I was like, this kid's going to be a star. There was no doubt in my mind. I've never been wrong, by the way. Actually, you too. Now that I remember you reminding me of who you were, I remember seeing you at, at the show, and I was like, oh, my God. But um, it's just you watch certain individuals on stage, and there's a lot more there than just the act. And it also is allowing for entertainment. And you feel like you are, I know this is going to sound awful coming from a comic, but you feel a little better leaving their performance. Um, And Rami had that. And I told him, I said, you are without a doubt a star, kid. I'm not surprised with wherever you go. Mo, same thing. When Mo would get on stage, it was just, it was great to see this representation at the Comedy Cellar. So you brought up Dahmer. We'll we'll talk about that and then go back to a lot of the inclusion that I, I really want to talk about. But Dahmer, are you watching it? No. I, I'm from, you know, the, the Northern Illinois, like he was in Milwaukee. I have family in Milwaukee. Like I grew up hearing about it. Uh, he actually, he died on my fourth birthday. And so when I was a teenager, you know, I was like a goth teenager who listened like corn and stuff, shopped at Hot Topic. And when I found that out, I was just like, oh, I'm going to read about this guy. And, you know, you I feel like everybody as a teenager has that like, oh, I'm interested in murder and serial killers, weird history. And you learn about it, you read about it and you move on. So I was like, I've already watched like documentaries on him. I know the story. What am I going to get? 
from watching this like glamorized depiction where you have this attractive actor playing him. What am I going to get from this? What am I going to learn from this? It's just going to be reliving these things I already know are horrible and just anticipating things with dread. So I said, no, thank you. Yeah. Evelyn, do you, do you watch? Let me tell you what I watch. Yes. I watch Bachelor in Paradise. I watch Indian <laughs> Matchmaker. I Our watch... Indian Matchmaker is excellent. Uh-huh. Yeah. I watch uh, Love is Blind, Cobra Kai. I just like, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous and funny. I have become, the older I get, so sensitive to violence and rape and murder that the, and as Ashley was saying, the trailer's on all the time. And when it's on, I'm like, make it stop, make it stop, turn, turn the channel, because I'm scared. I'm scared I'm not going to be able to sleep at night if I watch it. So I am, it's it's not for me. And if I were to watch it, I would need the puppy show right yeah. after. And like they, there's like a clip Netflix posted on Twitter that like went viral. And it's the clip of the one kid who managed to escape and the police brought him back. And just seeing that one scene, I was so angry and just like, I don't want to watch this. I don't, I already know the cops were horrible. I already know they were racist and homophobic. Like what, what do I get from watching this? What are you teaching us? What, and then, you know, what I see on TikTok and Twitter, and I know that's a limited sample of Gen Xers and younger people, but they are like, they're romanticizing Evan Peters as Jeffrey Dahmer like they're making shirts and earrings and they're making fan cams, you know, of him with like Megan the Stallion songs and like hearts over his eyes. And, you know, there are people who are like, you know, when you watch, it's really clear that he was also suffering from homophobia and what he did isn't that wrong. And they're making TikToks about like how he should have been protected and supported and people who wanted to write him in prison. And it's like, what if this is the outcome, why are we doing this? What is... Is it true that it's number one? It is, yeah. It's number one. It's It's been number one since it came out. And also, I noticed last night that uh, the John Wayne Gacy tapes are now also in the top ten again. Uh, and those came, that came out like three or four years ago. And so you see like all of these other serial killer documentaries are starting to like pop back up and get popular on on Netflix now. It's also October. It's October. Oh, no. Uh, it's, uh, it's October, so I figure they're doing like a Halloween, you know, push. But I don't watch these shows for a very specific reason. I, t I had a family member that was murdered. And um, I know, and it's been a show on Dateline. And every year they play it, um, my family member is affected by it. And they call me and they get sad again. Well, we're always, it never leaves. And so I, I am a fan of horror, but not real, real situations, situational horror. I can't do it. My body reacts to it very badly. I, I started to watch The Staircase, and I, I was like, why am I, I feel like I'm about to vomit? And I forgot it's because this is very real for me. I had to sit in court and watch the person who killed my sister. I had to um, watch people talk about my sister's case like they knew the situation. I had people who would talk about it in such a negative way. There's so many things that riddle the, the family like bullets that lead to, you know, we're doing all this push for mental wellness 
and health and illness, and this is going backwards, yeah. in my opinion. A show you're like not yeah, Dahmer with, is not helping you're not your dealing mental with, health. Yeah, you're not you're not dealing with the real situation that needs to be dealt with, and that is America has a huge mental illness issue. And why is it trending? Because we have such a very serious sick population that doesn't care and doesn't have empathy. And this promotes that. I mean, I talk to people who watch it, and I don't go at them too hard because I know they just don't know and they haven't experienced it. Um, and it's it's one of those things that I can't see how after a pandemic where people have lost loved ones, a lot of people have lost loved ones, how you can't understand this family member who was affected by a show like this. The woman wrote, um, Perry, she goes, um, uh, when I saw some of the show, it bothered me, Rita, especially when I saw myself, when I saw my name come across the screen and this lady saying verbatim exactly what I said, Rita Isbell said of the Dahmer scene depicting the moment she read her statement in court, if I didn't know any better, I would have thought it was me. That's why it felt like I was reliving it all over again. And it brought back all the emotions I was feeling back then. And, you know, it's also like an economic situation here because I wonder if the family had money or if these were victims, white victims with wealth, would they have taken so much liberty with this story? It seems like what they care about is that it's number one. I saw that uh, clip with the two scenes side by side. It's chilling. I mean, I haven't lost a family member in the way that you did, but I'm scared to watch it. I think that the public is fascinated with human horror, with the capacity of humans to do the most despicable things. That scares the shit out of me. So I don't want to watch it. It really just, it's so disturbing to me. And in my world, like in my life, you know, I'm studying Abu Ghraib prison. I'm studying people who kill Muslims and hate crimes. That's not entertainment to me. Like I'm literally checking out by watching Bachelor in Paradise. Uh, but I think a lot of people are fascinated by the, the possibilities of what human beings can do. And a lot of people don't understand that they do not contact the family. It, it's um, this wrote, uh, Perry wrote, in a subsequent thread, to answer the main question, no, they don't notify families when they do this. It's all public record, so they don't have to notify or pay anyone. My family found out when everyone else did, so when they say they're doing this with respect to the victims or honoring the dignity of the families, no one contacts them. My cousins wake up every few months at this point with a bunch of calls and messages, and they know there's another Dahmer show, and it's just cruel. Yeah. And I think it is interesting that, you know, most of his victims were black. They they didn't have a lot of money. And you do look at examples of when people get paid and they are usually white people. Uh, so Michelle Carter, she was the woman uh, who told her boyfriend to kill himself via text and was basically pushing him to kill himself. Uh, he got into a car and like was going to get out and she was like, no, get back in. And they turned that and it was a documentary. They turned it into a, a TV show for Hulu called The Girl from Plainville. Uh, and she was allowed to profit from her story. Um, she yeah. So she was involved. She made money from it. You know, she gave them insight into like her diaries at the time, you know, and they work with her. And 
you know, they could have used just public record. They could have used just what was in the documentary, but, you know, they knew that gives them an edge. So they're willing to pay that money. But in these other situations, there's no real edge. There's no there's no benefit that's going to, you know, help them financially by giving these other people, these, you know, usually lower class black brown people that same input. Um, and also a lot of times when at least when it's like a black brown criminal, they will have the, that right taken away. So there was an, an Asian girl. I, her name was Ellen something, but she had a similar situation where she encouraged her boyfriend to kill himself. And part of her sentencing was you're not allowed to make money from this. You can't sell the story. And so it's like, shouldn't that be maybe for all criminals? There needs to be some legislation. <laughs> there needs to be. And I believe this. Right. And it gets tricky, I guess, because you want to when you want to tell stories, I think there needs to be legislation passed that protects the family. I agree. You're going to use someone's story and then leave them out in the cold to be getting calls from journalists and other people to comment about the most traumatizing moment in their life. And they're not even going to get paid or anything or a heads up. At a minimum, they should be paid. Yeah. And I and especially with this. I mean, this is sensationalism. This has been, in, this is entertainment. Now, is it different from the other one that was popular that came out while we were all locked in? The the Asian, I want to say, why do I even say octopus? <laughs> Squid Game? You know, on Netflix. Squid Games, thank oh, you. Yeah. Oh, I said, look, I'm like, octopus. It helped. It helped. It was obviously it, yeah. Squid Games. <laughs> but was it, is it, is it different? Squid Game's like not real, yeah, right? It's make-believe. Right. You know, right. okay. it, it's make-believe. Yeah, you know, it, it's make-believe. It's easier to watch because it does feel more like just a horror film or a horror show. You know, it's like these people in a game show. And Dahmer, like, like the scenes that are becoming most powerful are the ones that are most realistic. It's the stuff that people are like, wow, that really is, you know, what happened. It's the actual depictions of the victims, of their families. You know, no one is is like, oh, Evan Peters has done something so fantastical and done something different. It's just kind of like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And then there's already 20 documentaries that, that have gone into this. I think they're getting to, into a little bit of illegal issues with a couple of their shows where they take like uh, privilege or with that they shouldn't. Yeah, and I, I think there's a big part of it is that they have kind of hit the limit on documentaries. So we did see this over quarantine. They did have a ton of documentaries about serial killers. There was like the Cecil Hotel, the Night Ripper. The Tiger one. Yeah, you Tiger. know, the just so much about that. And, you know, there's been this rush in Hollywood to buy up as many documentaries as you can. You have Discovery Plus that like every month is putting out a new like Army Hammer documentary, a new cult documentary. And it's almost impossible for Netflix to keep up. So now what they have to resort to is, okay, what can we adapt? What can we adapt and then get big names attached to it? Because that will that will draw attention. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just, for me, I just, when anyone asks me, I go, nope, I don't watch it because it happened to me in real time. It's real. You know, a lot of times people don't think these things can happen. And when it does happen to you, as a, as someone who's in entertainment, it was the weirdest experience. You know, and a lot of times my family would say, do you want to be part of this interview? I go, no. I go because I know they don't care. I know they're going to they're gonna splice it with this music that makes it interesting for everyone. And years later, they, a lot of my 
there, some of my family members told me, you were right. We, sh- we just, we tried to be in a part of it because we knew they would go on and do it without us. But then the, the thing is, is that because they're a part of it, they're seen. And so people see them and they go, oh, my God, I didn't know that, you know. So they don't have my image. So a lot of times people only, only people who know my story can comment. They go, I didn't know the full depth of it. And they, but then people who don't know me don't know. Like unless, you know, like now, and I barely mention it on the show, but now people know sort of on the podcast, you know. But, yeah, it's tough. It's re-traumatizing individuals all over again. That is definitely a fact. And you either have empathy for that or you don't. Now, protests continue in several cities across Iran after the death of, I'm going to try to, you can correct my pronunciation. Is it Masa Amini? Yes. A 22-year-old woman in police custody. A human rights group reported that, Yes, 83 people have been killed in nearly two weeks of demonstrations. Amini had been arrested in Tehran by the morality police for unsuitable attire, reaffirming the strict dress code for women. Her death has sparked the biggest public outrage since the rise in gasoline prices in 2019. And I'm going to jump to this. Also, the Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi said that unrest was the latest move of hostile Western powers since its Islamic revolution in 1979. Can you explain this for us more so people understand it? So I don't, I'm not an expert on Iranian history. However, I can tell you that for me, watching the story, when I first saw it, I thought, oh no. For 18 years after 9-11, it felt like every week there was a story either about oppression or terrorism. You know, I mentioned Abu Ghraib, Iraq war, Afghan war, special registration, hate crimes, constant, constant. And the last two years, I feel like I get to breathe for a minute because Trump didn't use Muslims on his second round of trying to get reelected. And it hasn't been, it was, it was on the news all the time. And so when I first saw this, my first gut reaction was, oh no, we're going to be obsessed with the oppression of women again. And that's all we do. That's how we talk about Muslim women. But this does seem different. And it seems different for one reason, which is that historically, when we talk about this topic, it's like, oh, Western countries need to go in and invade and save the women, rather than seeing women as having agency and being able to protest and defend themselves. Muslim women have been debating and protesting for a long time. And so for me, that's what's different about this, is that there are women who are demanding bodily autonomy, which guess what? We're demanding that here too, with the end of abortion with Me Too. Uh, So the trend has been, we're obsessed with Muslim women, we need to save them. They are uniquely more oppressed than we are. And people might still be thinking all of that, but there seems to be an opportunity here or an opening to see them as empowered, fighting for their rights, just like we all are around the world. And so um, I do hope that their protests can lead to a better place. What what do you think of the social media posts? I know you're not on social media, and Nanda must... just forced me. My um, publicist just forced me to go on uh, Twitter and Instagram. We were on a call last week. She said, "Okay, I want you to go to Twitter.com. Now I want you to put your name in." And afterwards, I got a text from my cousin that said, "Someone's trying to impersonate you on Instagram. I just messaged the account." 
because it's so unbelievable to people in my life that I would be on there. I'm like, I just opened an account. I haven't posted anything. <laughs> well, send it to us if you're still on. Are you still Thank on? Thank you. I just opened it, so I will okay. be. I'll do something at some point. And so, what do did you see the celebrities who posted about this? Do, do, do tell. Oh, you haven't seen it. No. Oh, I wonder if I could share my screen. This may be the time to start screen sharing. Let's see here. Hold on. Okay, so they don't have that ability then to share the sound, but I will show. This is you can see it, right? Um, So these are all of the the actors commenting about it. Um, People in the U.S. complaining about. Look at look at some of the comments here. Do you see that? Yeah. All these rich people doing a short clip and doing and doing about their rich lives as if they've changed something. Virtue signaling, they call it. I mean and the other comment. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So these are all, you know, actors. I mean, yeah, it does feel very much like at the beginning of COVID when they did the Imagine video and it was just all the celebrities singing and it was like, what are we supposed to take from this? What, 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 what is this for? You know, who, how does this really help? I mean, I guess it raises awareness. I don't know what they're saying and what their stance is. And if they're just like Iran is horrible, support these people, or if they have a more complicated, you know, let's not pathologize them. Let's not save them. But I guess that's what's done these days, right? You just, celebrities can be important by highlighting an issue. Yes. I, cause I, I watched it and then I was, I was too slightly annoyed because I was like, I, I get what they're doing and I think it does raise awareness and that's important, but let the, let it come from the people who are affected. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I feel like we all kind of should know better by now. Like after 2020, after explaining to people posting a black square doesn't do anything, I feel like there's been a turn where people realize the best thing you can do is mutual aid, is supporting people who are on the ground who are saying, we need this, we need this, get us, you know, these supplies, share this. That's the best thing to do. And I, I feel like we all should know that by now. <laughs> yes, I agree. Listen to them, let them say and then follow their lead. What are some things about the hijab that people get wrong, really wrong? I know we've talked about a few, but. Mm -hmm. The main thing is people assume that it is a symbol of oppression. And in the case of Iran, it's mandatory. No one wants to be told what to wear or not to wear. So I do think it's an issue when it is required. But for a lot of women uh, who choose to wear it, it is a symbol of modesty. It is not a symbol of oppression. A symbol of being closer to God and uh, expressing modesty as part of the faith. So I think that is the main um, misconception. When I was teaching right after 9-11, it was an interesting moment because um, I had a lot of Muslim female students who just started wearing the hijab after 9-11, and they saw it as a, a form of political resistance. They're like, I can walk in the world, no one knows I'm Muslim. The only way they know I'm Muslim if I wear, is if I'm wearing a hijab, so I'm starting to wear one now. And so for some people, it was motivated not necessarily by modesty and faith, but by a political situation and trying to represent um, Muslims and give a positive representation. I remember the first times uh, uh, in Syracuse now, and I 
was very ignorant of a lot, you know. And I moved to New York to go to do theater at Syracuse. And I, I don't know where she is, but I remember her being in the theater department. She was wearing the hijab, and I just, I thought it was so beautiful that she was in these theater exercises in my classroom with a hijab. I had never seen that before. Being from, you know, Chicago is so segregated. Ugh. That's why I moved, because I, I love diversity more than anything. But I remember her... Uh, I remember her coming to my home. We were very good friends, and she put her job. She showed me how to put it on. It was such a powerful moment. I, I'll never forget how beautiful that experience was. It's almost like stepping into someone else's shoes, or just being really just being open to it. And she had never seen snow before, too. So we were doing all of this at the same time. She was seeing snow, and I was putting on a hijab. And, um, yeah, anyway, that's my experience that I had that was yeah. that I share. It's a beautiful I memory. Yeah, I always wonder what happened to her, too, because she was in that theater department, and I often wondered if they, if they fulfilled what she needed. And in, in, at that time, theater was so white. I mean, all the stories, you know, you go and audition for a play, and as a black student, you're auditioning for plays where all the characters are mostly white. And then you wonder why you don't get it. And you think it's because of your acting. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, it's not. It has nothing to do with like Marina. You can't play an Irish woman. <laughs> I mean, dancing at, at Lunasa was the play. But an yeah. Irish woman can play a black yeah. woman. Oh, yeah. yeah. They'll let it go that way all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what other what other shows are you watching? Like Ashley, you have some really good. Like, what do you think? What yeah, should we be streaming? I mean, there's so much out right now. I'm watching kind of everything. Uh, I, I think one of the big hits of the summer was P Valley, uh, which is on Stars. It's about this uh, black strip club in Mississippi, uh, and it, it's wonderful. It's uh, Kataji Hall. I think that's her look. Kataj. Oh, you're like I, me now. I literally you're was like, like I'm on a look roll. Kataji. Octopus. Uh, <laughs> but she uh, adapted it from a play she wrote. So it's this very interesting, like Shakespearean retelling of sort of, you know, these black women who take over this business on their own, who are trying to come up against this town that is against you know sex and sexuality and that's trying to put them out of business and there's murder and it's it's really exciting um i've really been obviously rami which just came out it, it, just again to say it's really good go go watch the new season um the patient on hulu um with steve carell he plays a psychiatrist it's him in another very serious role i feel like steve carell was like after the office i'm never going to be funny again and it is if you need something scary to watch for Halloween, it is the most terrifying psychological thriller. Is it? Yeah. Like I started watching it and I was like, I don't know. I was like trying to see, are we going into the psychological head of the serial killer or which, like, which is it? Yes, basically. Like, I, I don't know what episode you got to, but it gets to a point. I, I didn't get too yeah. far. <laughs> <laughs> like when it's introduced, you're like, oh, this is just a psychiatrist dealing with his patients. Uh, and then eventually one of those patients kidnaps him uh, so that he can help him stop being a serial killer. 
And he's like locked in this basement trying to help this guy while also constantly being aware that he could be killed at any moment. Uh, and the guy is also still actively trying to kill people. Um, so. And is Steve Carell, is he, he's not funny not at all. Not funny at all. There are some funny situations. I, you know, like he's, they, they find some humor in him being locked in this basement. Uh, but, you know, if you want something Dahmer-esque, but you don't want to watch something based off of real tragedy, uh, it, it, it's, yeah, like the, the guy's mother lives there and she just treats it as though it's like him not doing the dishes when he murders someone. She's just like, I told you, you're, no, you're grounded. And so there's like comedy in that way. Um, but I, it, it's also only 30 minute episodes, so it's really easy to just kind of get through it, you know. Um, gosh, well, oh, 90 Day Fiance, that is like one of my big ones, you know. You know, I never watched 90, everyone talks about 90 Day Fiance. What is the thing that keeps oh, you watching? I mean, I watch every single spinoff, every... Do you watch The oh, Other yeah. Way? The Other Way, Happily That's Ever After, like Before now. the 90 Days, mm -hmm. 90 Day, The Single Life. I'm on all of it. <laughs> uh, I actually review it for Vulture, so part of it is that I, I have to watch it. Um, but, you know, a lot of people think it's a game show, it is not. It is It is about people who are going through the K-1 visa process. So that's what you have to do to marry someone from another country if you're in America. So sometimes it's people who are like, we just met on a dating app. We've never met in person, but we're going to get married. And it's clearly a scam. But there are some people where it's like, oh, we've been dating since high school. You know, I met them on my college trip or whatever, and we fell in love. And now they're finally coming to this country, and it's real love. But most of the time, it is scams. Um, I, I do actually think it is, it shows an interesting side of like American diversity in this melting pot and the American dream, because so often the, the foreigners come to America and they're like, this is it. Like the America land of the plenty, this is going to be amazing. And then they go live in like middle of nowhere, Kansas. And they're like, wait, wait, <laughs> like, wait, Americans live like this. Like there was one guy who came from Morocco to live with this woman in Ohio and she lived in like a trailer park. She didn't have heat or energy because of like, she hadn't been paying her bills. And he was just like, you told me you were going to take care of me and that I was going to live like a king here. And he's <laughs> like, I had to get it. Sorry. Here's your yeah, hot And plate. he's like, back in my country, I was like a doctor. I had a degree and now I'm driving a truck in Ohio. And so I I think I like it for that reason. I think it really kind of goes into just like how much and, and the Americans are always like, we live in the best country. We're amazing. Like, you should be thankful you're in America. And then these other people are like, no, it's this is bad here. <laughs> like, this isn't great. Uh, and then the other way is really good because that's Americans going to other countries um, and it gets kind of wild. There was this one woman who went to uh, Saudi Arabia and, you know, you're not allowed to like have alcohol in your home. Like you can only drink in select areas if you pay these certain fees. But she like found a way to make toilet wine. Like she basically was Googling, like, how do they do it in prison? <laughs> and she got all the stuff to make toilet wine like in her home because she was just like, I can't drink. And then, of course, her partner, this like very strict Muslim man is like, no, they will arrest us. They they will look at what you're Googling. They will see that you bought these things and they will come arrest us. Oh, they look at what they're Googling? I guess so. He was very worried. And I think he also was like, because you even bought these things, they're going to be like, why did you buy all this yeast and grapes? Like, 
Oh, yeah. shoot. Looking at the grocery yeah. list. And she was oh just like, I'm just yeah. so desperate. Like, I can't afford to drink at the casinos because it's so expensive. But, you know, I found a way to, to make alcohol at home. And, you know, that's. I've missed that one. I got to catch yeah. up. TB is suggesting that you do that bit. TB saying that's a bit like when hosting exchange students who are shocked to live in rural yeah. Oregon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was this girl from Ukraine who went to go stay with a guy in rural Oregon. And she was like, oh, you know, I think we're going to be like near Seattle. We're going to be, you know, near Portland or something. And then she was just like, "You, what do you mean you live on a farm and you have horses and a lake? Like, she was just like, no, this is like, I need a, to be able to get a spray tan every week. <laughs> like, <laughs> And it's just so interesting to see how people view America and the just shock when they get here and realize like there, there's also a lot of like interracial couples and every time like the person of color comes to America and is like when we when I moved here to Virginia to be with my wife I had no idea I would face racism and it's like a man from like Cameroon who is very black and is just like what why do people stare at us when we walk down the street I thought this was America and yeah. Now you were you got uh, banned right from Twitter I did for, for a bit. Can you tell our listeners yeah, uh, why why that happened? I ha I'm back on now, and they did give me my banned account back actually uh, because I, like Earwolf yelled at them. They were like, "If you want us to run ads, give her her account back," and they did. <laughs> yeah, really? it did take. Oh. It took two years. Uh, but I had a verified account and it was like the day of the 2020 election. Donald Trump was tweeting like, I won the election. I won the election. And so I changed my picture to Donald Trump and my name to Donald Trump. And because I was verified, it looked like I was tweeting as him. And then I quote tweeted that and said, oh, sorry, I meant to say erection. It was a typo. Just very, very simple joke. Not even that funny. And, like, two seconds after doing it, I could not get into my account. It was just, like, account suspended, lockdown. Two yeah, seconds. It was, like... Meanwhile, he can tweet yeah, forever. Yeah, he can tweet forever. You know, mm -hmm. he, yeah. And then eventually they banned him, and I was like, well, if he's not even on there, how am I in trouble for impersonating someone who can't even be on the app? You know, like, how does that make sense? So, <laughs> so yeah. They are definitely biased over there on the social media oh, yeah. platforms. Uh, without a doubt, I will notice I'll post something about voter rights, about Georgia, and I'll notice the number of people who view it is far less than if I just had like a like a uh, you know a puppy or you know something. If I and I often wonder if the language was different, what would happen? It's it, uh, I had a post about school supplies for like kids in the Bronx who needed school supplies. When I tell you the numbers were so low on that, I'm like, this is yeah. weird. It's like anything that is like helpful. I'll share someone's GoFundMe. You know, they're like, oh, we need aid here. I'll share that. I'll share some like, you know, petition, nothing. And then I tweet something mundane like Twizzlers are the best candy and it's getting like 25 million likes and people are arguing with me all day. Like, I, I don't get it. TB says TikTok is the worst for throttling black creators yeah, yeah i mean they tiktok uh, tiktok doesn't want you to be happy i think tiktok is an app that wants you to feel miserable that that's actually what my producers are making me do they were like you have to get on tiktok that's like how you engage people now and it's just like there's different kind of communities so there's like you know which tiktok and that's people who do tarot cards and there's like 
therapist TikTok, which is a mix of real therapists and people who have no idea what they're doing. And they'll be like, if you get goosebumps, that's a that's a sign of trauma and you have PTSD. And it's like, what? I think I'm just cold. <laughs> like, like it's, yeah. Yeah, they have, it's kind of crazy. Like and the arguments that happen on TikTok, like as a comic, I did really well on TikTok. Like I'm at 49,000 or something. It was like, and I do very little. And I just put up a couple of posts from my stand-up. But the, the stand-up that I post on TikTok is different from the ones I post on Instagram. The TikTok is like, okay, the community is like young and they're going to get all sensitive. But the thing is, I noticed, like, I'll put, a, I was talking about Zainab Johnson, who's a comedian um, who've had on the show several, you know, Zainab? Yeah, 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 she's performed at the Muslim Public Affairs Council conventions. Oh, amazing. she's listening to yeah. this, so she's hearing you recognize. Yeah, she's amazing. And she represents for, you know, black Muslim comedians. It's just so, so awesome, and she's so funny, so talented, so gorgeous. But we were talking about this yesterday about, like, I'll put up thing has gone viral about you aged well. That's my black girl magic. I'm ageless. Yes. Black don't, you know, I don't say black don't crack, but I say, you know, I aged well, and that's my black girl magic. And when I tell you the people who try to comment, the white people try to comment on TikTok, they'll try to do insults like, I saw her, and she was like, she looks like she's 50. And I'm like, listen, that whole age thing, you ain't going to win <laughs> because black don't yeah. crack, okay? It can, but for the most part, and I know we can go into a whole thing about how we shouldn't talk about black people age because black people do age and that whole thing. But in reality, give us that. Just sit in it and deal with it. I'll get a lot of white... Why do you have to talk about how you age? Well, that's not, if that's all yeah. we get, let us give enjoy us that. it. Let us. We get all this repression and 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 racism and so and bad water, yeah. and we still Jesus, age well. Come on, with all the Shit. stress, please, we deserve it. <laughs> Evelyn, where can our listeners? find you and tell us a little bit more about why they should get your book listeners can find me at evelynalsultani.com or on my new brand new twitter handle at evelyn Al-Sultani. and um my book looks at how muslims have become included in diversity politics and the possibilities and limits of the diversity project with friends like us you can come to appreciate certain TV shows even if you don't like them. Oh, yes. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. Ashley? Uh, you can find me on my Twitter account I got back at the Ashley Ray. <laughs> uh, that's the same on Instagram, TikTok. Uh, follow my TikTok, please, because they, they really want me to use it at the Ashley Ray. Uh, and you can listen to my podcast, TV I Say with Ashley Ray, wherever you listen to podcasts. I talk about TV shows every week like this, shows I'm loving, uh, what I think is exciting. And with friends like us, you will never worry about TV recommendations again. I'll give you so many things to watch that you're going to be like, I've been watching 90 Day Fiance for three weeks now. So, Yes, thank you. Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com for all things for the podcast. We've got merch. I don't have it on right now. We've got a nice Friends Like Us hoodie. And with friends like us, you can have new friends on the show that are smart, beautiful, and just you make the show so easy. So thank, thank you. you. Check, Check us out. out.